from PRX. Stew. Stew. Dear. Dear. Oh. Studio. That's it. Right? Studio. 360 with Carl Anderson. Kurt Anderson. Kurt Anderson. I listen to it on the uh, radio in my car. Well, don't be sniffy about I'm not pen. being sniffy. I think I'm you mean, are. No, no. You've got a nose for it. Oh, gosh. Wow. What are you saying over there? Today on the show... I had a terrible fear that he'd turn the machine on and look at my brain and it would just be gray fuzz. Can we look inside a brain and watch creativity in action? Keep listening. Stay right there. Don't go anywhere. Stay. Sit. You're listening to this show, so maybe you think you're creative. But what do you mean by that? And if you think, oh, I'm not creative... What do you mean by that? On today's show, we'll hear about a state-of-the-art experiment to find the creative sweet spots in the brain by hitching musicians to very expensive instruments, scientific instruments. They shove you all the way into the tube, and you're just in there, just, just enough movement to be able to move your arm, essentially. Creativity is this slippery, I-know-it-when-I-see-it thing. Considering that it's been one of our species-defining tricks for the last few hundred thousand years— It's surprising how little we know about it. In the middle of the 20th century, as we started trying to quantify everything, a psychologist named Paul Torrance decided that we needed to get serious about creativity, to measure it and analyze it. He came up with a set of tests that are still used today. So we sent Carrie Hillman to get her creativity quotient checked. I'm sitting at a table. I have my number two pencil in hand, and I'm getting ready to take a test. Yeah, this is this is the first of three different activities. That's John Kaufman from Scholastic and Testing the Service. The directions are make something out of this shape that no one else will think of. When you and I haven't taken a test in a really long time, and I have to say I'm a little nervous because this particular test is supposed to measure creativity which uh, just happens to be a fair chunk of my job description. Explain what it is that you have drawn. Okay. Oh. I'm looking at a, uh, a sort of egg-shaped blob. But uh, I think what I'm going to do is... I think I'm going to make it a lady's fingernail because the object of the game is to try to do something that nobody else um, would think of. It's called Thinking Creatively with Pictures, and it's part of the Torrance Tests for Creative Thinking, developed by psychologist E. Paul Torrance, the father of creativity. I think that a lot of his interest in creativity was based on his own personal history of always being somewhat outside any given box. That's Felice Kaufman, a researcher and consultant in gifted child education. And I continue, even 35 years after the fact, to identify as E. Paul Torrance's graduate assistant. Torrance developed his first test of creative thinking in 1966, and over the years added more and more tests. They've been translated into over 50 languages and are used all over the world to identify a person's creative potential in education and in the business world. Dr. Torrance started his study of creativity um, in the 40s when he studied soldiers and their resilience in survival. Torrance saw this as a form of creativity, just as much as art or design. 
He believed that if we could break down creativity into its key components and measure it, we could come up with ways to improve creative thinking in American education. Kind of patriotic, but there was a problem. I'm not sure I have a definition of creativity. This is James Borland, a professor of education at Teachers College, Columbia University. It's a word that we use in everyday speech, and it makes absolutely perfectly good sense to us. But when you start to study it and start to try to figure out what it is and specify its constituents, it becomes more and more and more confusing. Nobody agrees on what it is. It's one of those things, you know, one of those human constructions that isn't discovered but invented. Creativity was invented in the 1950s. That's when a psychologist, Joy Paul Gifford, came up with a theory that teased apart two distinct ways that people think. One was convergent thinking, you know, finding the single best answer to a problem. The other, and this is the important one for us, is divergent thinking. Divergent thinking is coming up with a lot of possible solutions, like in brainstorming. Torrance agreed that divergent thinking was a key component of creativity. He did a lot of research, a lot of studying, and came up with the uh, skills that are used to measure uh, a person's creative potential. And those skills are um, fluency and flexibility, or if you like thinking about a lot of different kinds of ideas. Uh, of course, being inventive or being original and being able to uh, elaborate an idea or add some extras to make an idea interesting. That's Garnet Miller. He worked with E. Paul Torrance for over 30 years. He also came up with what he called uh, super rational factors, being able to highlight the essence of something, keeping open, uh, being aware of your feelings or emotions, uh, putting your ideas It's an exhaustive list. I mean, I thought it was fairly creative, but now I'm wondering. The test I'm doing is called Thinking Creatively with Pictures, and the task is to draw pictures that incorporate various shapes and to give them captions. And after several painful attempts to make something recognizable and an embarrassing amount of erasing, I'm becoming acutely aware that the clock is ticking away. So I'm going to change strategies. And my plan now is to uh, focus on the concept and not the execution. Okay. guess that's all I get. Dr. Torrance uh, wanted to do a predictive study of his test, so he identified students back in uh, 1958 at the University of Minnesota. There is a laboratory school there, he, he assessed all of the students uh, when they were in grades 5, 6, and 7. And uh, what he wanted to do was to see whether his test actually measured creativity uh, later in life. Torrance looked at the students 12 years later and 22 years later to see if the test actually predicted creative achievement. Garnet Miller took over the study after Torrance died. They recently had their 50-year follow-up. I'm David Quiet, and I am a teacher, actor, and poet. I teach at New World School of the Arts, and I'm currently in a production of Ruined, which was a Pulitzer Prize-winning play of 2009. David is a Torrance kid. He was tested in the fourth grade and identified as one of the students having creative potential. We were constantly uh, being uh, taken out of the classroom, and, uh, and of course, the, the carrot at the end of the stick was like getting a little army man or something. You could choose which little... Um, bobble you wanted afterwards and so that everyone liked to go to the tests 
Of course, we didn't always understand what they were measuring. <laughs> James Borland, the education professor, says the criteria Torrance used to define creativity were so broad that they're just not useful. One of the notions behind the Torrance test is that creativity is a general ability. There's one creativity, and the creativity that a composer shows or that a research scientist shows or that a creative parent shows, is all. it's the same thing. Um, my opinion is that teaching creativity out of context doesn't make sense. Kids become more creative in writing by writing and by reading, not by developing so-called creativity muscles. That just doesn't make sense to me at all. So why try to measure what you can't even define? What we did was to evaluate it, as I say, 18 different ways. But, but as John Kaufman way. walks me through my assessment, things start to click. As we review my strengths, uh, my strong resistance to closure, which might make my editor crazy, but means I keep developing my ideas, uh, my strong elaboration, building on those ideas, you know, as well as my weaknesses, uh, getting hung up on fixing one idea rather than generating lots and lots of new ones, they sound very familiar. So how did I do? <laughs> Not terrible. I usually look at the standard score or the creativity index somewhat uh, the same as I do IQ. So if you put yourself into an IQ mode and saying 130, where 100 is average, that's, that's uh, about where you are. The jury's still out on whether or not this is measuring exactly how creative I am. But it does feel useful. I think I know more about how I work, and it sort of gives me a roadmap for how to improve. So, who knows? I might just be getting a little more creative after all. Carrie Hillman, Creativity IQ 130, brought us that story. She also begged us not to post her drawing of a finger from her Torrance test. Too bad. You can see it at pri.org slash studio360. I'm Kurt Anderson, and I am joined now by Gary Marcus. Gary is a psychology professor and director of the Center for Language and Music at New York University, as well as the author of several books, including Guitar Zero, which is an account of how he learned to play the guitar late in life. Relatively late, I guess I should say, since you're only in your 40s now. Gary, welcome. Thanks very much for having me. So, as we heard, creativity is a difficult thing to measure and creative aptitude, although people try. Why is it? Is it just a definitional problem or is it deeper? There, there are a lot of different elements to creativity. Some of them are internal, like how well can you look at a certain puzzle and give me five different answers to it. And some of it has to do with how well you know the history of the genre that you're working within. So if you're in music, how well do you know jazz if you're playing jazz? And there's opportunity and circumstance. And so when you have a measure that tries to capture creativity, it's not necessarily going to do a great job of right. pre predicting how well an actual person is in a real scenario. Right. Yeah, yeah as you say, if, if you're going to be a writer, you need to know, you need to have read and know what's done or music, same thing. But presumably there is some version of an aptitude of being able to connect these dots in surprising ways that, that a test could theoretically measure. 
Well, it if might, not this test, I don't know. It might actually be many aptitudes. So you can have a test that's trying to get the sort of one true measure of creativity. It's the same thing with intelligence. I don't think there's a single box in the head that is intelligence. People have gone and looked for it. You know, does it live in the prefrontal cortex? Or is it the, the speed at which we can solve equations or something like that? And nobody's ever found the one perfect measure of intelligence. Right. There are a lot of things that are intercorrelated, and I think that's because there are lots of sub-abilities that go into intelligence, and the tests are tapping into a kind of conglomeration of those. So uh, IQ scores mean something, even if they're not perfect measurements of intelligence. Similarly, you think these Torrance tests may mean something? Yeah, they correlate somewhat with actual achievement. It's sort of like looking at someone, measuring their height and saying, are they going to be a good basketball player? Well, on average, you know, the taller people are the better basketball players, but it's only an average. Right. It's a pretty indirect measure. Right. Does that lead you to think that this is just an imperfect measurement of it and that we could measure it better or should we just give up on those kinds of fill-in-the-bubble the, the, the aptitude tests when it comes to creativity or intelligence? Um, definitely you don't want to have people just fill in the bubble if you want to measure yeah. creativity. You want to look at the things where people are drawing outside the lines. And the second thing is even if you do it, I think you have to have realistic expectations because there's not a single unified box in the head that is creativity and because so many things enter in like cultural knowledge and the, the zeitgeist of the moment and so forth, it's probably not realistic to expect that any test is going to be a perfect measure of creativity. And now that we are in the age of, of direct observation of how the brain works and maybe how the mind works. Uh, are, are these kinds of tests going to be a thing of the past in your lifetime, if not mine? I, I don't think that the brain is going to replace them. I'm not sure how much value there is in the test in the first place. Mm -hmm. There's no place that I know where the brain is really a better test than a cognitive test or than a um, behavioral test. So we, we aren't to the point where huh. we can really look at the structures of your brain and say, you know, you're going to be a creative person. We can find that on average there are going to be slight differences between the creative people and, and the less creative people. But the brain measures are pretty indirect. There's a lot of noise. You can think of them as sort of like how many mega pixels are the images and they're not a lot of pixels in those images and that may and, and we don't know a lot about the brain structures underlying them so we're not in a position where we can predict exactly how violent someone's going to be or how smart they're going to be or any of those things people love the pictures but they really should be taken with a grain of salt now you were a tenured professor and a, and a well-established scientist when you started playing the guitar a few years ago H had you always thought of yourself as a creative person uh, I never particularly thought of myself as a creative person. I'm, I think that creativity takes on different forms. I think I'm creative as a writer and as a scientist, but not as an artist or as a musician. Um, I've tried to, to develop some creativity, so I, I compose music for myself. I, not, I don't foist it upon the world, and I would say I have some aptitude for it. Well, you, you make an interesting point embedded in there, which is that creativity is so routinely and reflexively equated with work in the arts as opposed right. to in science. You know, it's, it's oh, creative people go perform and write and make pictures and uncreative people go do accounting or whatever. Uh, That's you, right. I mean, there's a lot of creativity involved in science. And I think I've developed the skills to do that kind of creativity. The kind of creativity in arts is a different kind of thing. There's some relation. In both cases, excuse me, I think you want to try to move outside what other people have done. You want to see what's what's original, you want to have an understanding of, of a history. And I think I have that kind of creativity, but there's a kind of creativity that's looking at a physical object and seeing a different way to draw it. That There's a different skill and one that I haven't cultivated. So to the degree that creativity is about solving a problem, it, it's your problems are different than a painter's problems. That's right.
And and when you're hiring people for your lab, graduate students or whomever, do you do you try to suss out the degree to which they are or aren't scientifically creative? I do to some extent. I think the thing I care about most is are they troubleshooters? Are they problem solvers? So in the real world of science, nothing ever goes as planned. And you want people that not only realize that something didn't go right, but try to sit there and figure out how, how to fix it. And that's probably true in creativity too. You know, you, you try sure. out a chord structure, it doesn't quite work. And either you sit there and you kind of look at it or you say, how can I make this better? So you're a creative scientist and, and you can play the guitar and compose some music. Do you have a sense in your own life or from the literature or research you have done or know about that that creative ability is fungible from from one realm to another? I think it is in part and in part not. So some of creativity involves knowing the conventions of, of a particular domain, so knowing the rules of good writing and knowing when to break them. And some of creativity is just having the guts to break the rules. So the part that's sort of a personality trait, for example, about having the guts to break the rules, that probably is fungible across different domains. And the part that's about knowing how this thing works or knowing how to you know, tightly plot a suspenseful script, you know, that's specific knowledge, and that's not necessarily going to help you make a song. So there's a certain kind of risk-taking impulse and uh, I guess or courage I guess to to color outside the lines I think definitely definitely uh, a big focus of your research is is language acquisition how babies and little kids learn to speak some creative people have more facility with language than others professional storytellers or writers or lyricists is, is something different going on in the mind of a Jay-Z or Cole Porter do you think it's a great question, and I think it's hard to answer. Um, I don't think we have the brain imaging technology to really identify what's going on, and I suspect that the answer would be when you look at different people who are lyricists, that they actually have different things they bring to the table. So Dylan is, is very good with these kind of images. David Byrne, it's more about the rhythms than it is about the images. Right. The people that are good at rhymes, that might be a fine enough ability that we could nail that one down and say, this is how the brain gets good at rhymes and this is what's going on for these people doing the rhymes. The part where you connect something to an image that nobody's thought of before, I bet that's harder to pin right. down. Gary Marcus is the director of the Center for Language and Music at New York University, and we'll keep talking later in the hour. We'll see if we can't pin down what's happening inside of a few creative minds. Your head is in a cradle, a cage actually, and, and you're pretty crammed in there, but he's got a double mirror, so as you're laying on your back, you're seeing the keyboard laying on your knees. Piano playing guinea pigs. That's ahead in Studio 360 from Public Radio International in association with Slate. Studio 360. Bussy. Creativity to me is just like a friendly bird that embraces all ideas and just like shoots out of its eyes all kinds of beauty. Wow, I mean, this is like watching Hemingway ride. Yeah. We're talking this hour about the science of creativity, what we know and, and the vast amount we still don't know about how creativity works. Over the last couple of decades, a revolution has really taken place in neuroscience. Functional MRI, fMRI, has given us a tool to watch the brain at work in real time. 
By showing blood flow, fMRI gives a picture of what parts of the brain are active when we do various tasks, think various thoughts, feel various emotions, like remember something or make a moral judgment or play piano. From Baltimore, WYPR's Aaron Henkin has our story. Mike Pope's fingers wander over the keys of a Black Baldwin concert grand piano as he settles into the groove of an extended improvisation. Pope is a veteran. He's had his share of tough gigs over the years, but none quite as awkward as this. You know, so he just kind of lays you down, gets you comfortable, and, and you know, puts your knees up, and then you're laying on your back, and he's got, there's a double mirror. Your head is in a cradle, a cage, actually, and, and you're pretty crammed in there, but he's got a double mirror, so as you're laying on your back, you know, your knees are up in the air a little bit, and you're seeing the keyboard laying on your knees. You know, they, they shove you all the way into the tube, and you're just in there, just, just enough movement to be able to move your arm, essentially. And all this contortion is for an audience of just one person. My name is Charles Lim. I'm an otolaryngologist at Johns Hopkins Hospital, where I study music perception in the brain. So Dr. Lim's laboratory is basically a room with a computer workstation, a multi-million dollar functional MRI machine, and one musical instrument, a custom-built MIDI keyboard. It has 35 notes and no magnetic parts. Nearly 40 different musicians have squeezed themselves into this MRI tube and played this same keyboard, since Dr. Lim began his experiments in 2003. Once the doctor gets his musical guests comfortable in the fMRI with the keyboard, he outfits them with a pair of earbuds and pipes in the sound of a metronome. Their first task, a C major scale in quarter notes. Next, Dr. Lim tells the musicians to improvise on that same scale at the same tempo. This recording is another musician who participated in the study, a pianist named David Kane. Then Dr. Lim plays a backing track in the musician's earbuds and asks them to play a lead they've memorized beforehand. Finally, the musicians get the green light to let loose and start improvising over that same backing track. Now all the while, Dr. Lim is watching images of his subject's brains on a computer screen. Some areas light up bright red, other spots glow blue-green. In functional MRI, you're actually measuring changes in the signal of oxyhemoglobin and deoxyhemoglobin. Wait for it. Essentially, you're looking at how blood flow patterns change in the brain and the magnetic signal associated with it. To make a long story short, you're getting images that pertain to hot spots or cold spots of activity during a task. I had a terrible fear that he'd turn the machine on and, and, and look at my brain and it would just be gray fuzz. There wouldn't be any, any activity at all. Truth is, Dr. Lim didn't know what he was going to find. There's never been an fMRI study of jazz improvisation, so to a certain extent, we kind of had a very general statement, which is that we could measure neural networks specifically linked to the creative task. Now, what the doctor did know was that he'd come up with a solid, original experimental design, one that acknowledges an important fact. Not all music performance is creative. Step one, watch the real-time brain activity of a musician playing from memory. Step two, watch what happens in that same brain when the musician is creating new work. Step three, compare and contrast. When you transition from a memorized state to a creative state, there are certain changes in the brain. And if you sort of zoom in right on the prefrontal cortex here, you'll see that there are certain areas that are very active 
these areas that are red or active hotspots in nature imply that there's a sort of self-expressive or autobiographical region that's active during these solo jazz improvisations. Logical so far, expressive part of the brain humming away bright red, but equally important is what's not happening in the brain. Meanwhile, there's this broad shutdown of activity that's occurring in the lateral prefrontal cortex. I'll show that to you better here. This is a three-dimensional rendering of the brain where you can see this broad patch of sort of blue-green that represents what we call deactivation. So that part of the brain that cools down during the creative process, what exactly is its job? One of its main roles is, is self-monitoring, conscious self-monitoring and regulation of output so that it matches an intended effect. As musician Mike Pope puts it, the important part of improvisation is, is to... Um, well, it's literally to get out of your own way. And now it appears we know what getting out of your own way looks like in the brain. Expressive area turned up, inhibitory area turned down. We think in the aggregate that that represents kind of the neural signature of creativity, at least in jazz solo improvisation. The neural signature of creativity, lightning in a bottle. The triumph of science or the collective death rattle of the muses. Mike Pope is already thinking ahead to a brave new world of performance-enhancing drugs. Wouldn't it be great to be able to say, geez, I'm having a hard time organizing my thoughts, but, you know, if I drink my clear thought juice, whatever it is, you know, that we can kind of, we can, we can amp up that. Who knows what it'll bring? I, I, I don't know, but I think it's pretty cool to try. I'm just a generally curious person anyway, so I, I can see all the reason in the world for experiments like this. So are we headed toward a future where Grammys and National Book Awards are disgraced by doping scandals? Maybe musicians are a little more forgiving than baseball, uh, <laughs> baseball fans. We're joking, of course, but not really. I do think that one day we are going to have interventions, whether they're pills or other sort of commonly available things that are going to specifically affect the way our creative circuitry works. I don't know if it'll be during my lifetime or not, but I'm quite sure that that's going to happen one day. I think we'd be foolish as a scientific community to ignore it. I mean, creativity is, uh, you probably can't get to a more important, basic process by which we evolve. Thanks to Aaron Henkin for that story. Since we first ran it in 2012, Charles Lim has joined the faculty at the University of California, San Francisco. Professor Gary Marcus is with me today. He's a psychology researcher who runs the Center for Language and Music at New York University. He's also the author of the book Guitar Zero, The New Musician and the Science of Learning. So that seems like a properly modest conclusion where Dr. Lim says this is what creativity looks like in solo jazz improvisation. Is it your hunch that if you were hooked up to an fMRI when you're playing the guitar or I was hooked up to an fMRI when I'm writing that the, the, those signatures would look different? I would certainly expect that there are different signatures for different kinds of creative expression. I would even wonder whether if you did the same study slightly differently, whether you could actually get the same signature. So um, 
the truth is that when r people run multiple fMRI studies of particular phenomena, and there are even slight differences, they often get different results. So when you hear one study, you need to kind of hold on to your wallet and say, well, does this replicate? What if we change it in a slight way? What if, what if someone is doing jazz improvisation not with um, a keyboard but with a guitar? What if they're playing in a different scale? So th this was in the major scale. What if we played in the minor scale? Um, what if we did it early in the morning versus late at night? Right. There are a million possibilities. And generally what we found is we do replications of fMRI studies is you do multiple studies, they don't always all point in the same direction. So I would take that result as a really good piece of pioneering work, but not the last word. That's the first thing I would say. And then the second thing I would say is, yeah, it's going to depend even within jazz, it's going to depend on what process you're going through. What I liked about that study is trying to have a baseline where there's something that's not creative at all. Just play the C major scale in time with the metronome. And then there's this place where you play an improvisation. But that improvisation is relatively kind of limited in a way. It's, you've got these notes with this particular backing track. And in the world of improvisation, it's a sort of narrow possibility. And you might say, well, what if I said you can play in modes, you can shift between scales? What if I said I want you to riff on this melody that I'm going to play first? And so there's a whole world of improvisation, and that's only looking at a tiny piece of it. Of course, the studies are expensive, and right. you know, not blaming uh, Professor Lim for not having done all of these studies all in the first day. Right. But ultimately, to develop a research program, you, ne you need to try many different possibilities before you can conclude with confidence. It's it's also interesting to me that the distinction in a in a neural imaging way between memory and and expression uh, and I then then that leads me to wonder well when I memorized a song as a 10 year old piano player or a trumpet player that presumably would look different on the fMRI than you know Glenn Gould's signature when he you know played Bach by memory um, well that's a really deep question so memory is a really important part of improvisation so when you construct an improvisation the whole is obviously supposed to be new but studies suggest that a lot of times there are a lot of pieces there are little riffs in there and parts of scales and so forth that are old and when you're using things that are old you're going through your memory so probably even when you're doing the most crazy improvisation there's a huge demand on the brain's memory systems um, it's just you're using it in a different way than if you were playing a rehearsed right. piece I was also really interested in this idea that he, Professor Lim seems to be going toward of this, that significantly creative expression is about inhibition and disinhibition. What's your experience of that either as a guitar player or a writer or as a, as a research scientist? One of the first things I learned as a writer was what's called free writing, where you just basically throw everything down on a page and don't worry about it. And then you go back and revise and you know you try to shape it into a structure and so forth and one of the skills that develops is that you can actually start to combine those processes a little bit so you can do that free part and at the same time kind of automatically realize you know the grammatical structures you want vary the rhythms of the sentences and try to make the topic information come closer to the beginning and so forth so in the abstract idealized way that a beginner does these things they're really well defined stages that are separate in time but as you get good at them, you're actually combining all right. of these things in the same moment. And right. it comes harder and harder for the neuroscientist to, to peel them apart. But you really want to actually be able to do them all at once. So, so you know there is no bad idea. Yes, there is. That idea is bad. That idea is bad. And, and that all happens in a half a second. 
That's right. And like you get the idea that you want to put down on the page. And when you're a good writer, this sort of grammar follows with it. Originally, you have the idea and then the grammar comes afterwards. And this notion of automaticity that you get better at things by being able to do them automatic with less attention means you can do more things at once once you've practiced them enough to be solid. The, the, in that piece, Professor Lim and the player that was tested both speculated about creativity medicines in the future, which led me to wonder, well, is that why so many artists and musicians drink a lot and get high? Totally, and it probably works sometimes and not others. We do have people already trying to use performance-enhancing drugs in, in their cognitive domains. Coffee is a performance-enhancing drug. and um, The one the military is working on, and I actually know a professional academic who uh, plays around with this stuff, is modafinil, um, which basically is just something to keep you alert. And that's yeah. that's a performance-enhancing drug. And there's no question that people have tried alcohol, and you didn't mention LSD, but that's certainly something that was very popular in the 60s as, as an attempt at, at reaching a kind of creativity. They're just not precise yet. The, these are not precise tools and they have side effects and you know, there are reasons to not do them too, but they, they have been used in that capacity for a long time. The weirdest idea that leads me to think about though is you can actually disinhibit parts of the brain with a technique called TMS and I suppose um, some brain Does it hurt? What people. is it? Um, it's transcranial magnetic stimulation. It doesn't hurt. You can selectively impair certain parts of the brain for a moment. You sort of um, you stun a, a part of the brain. The problem is it's kind of crude, so you, we don't know that much about the brain anatomy, and we don't have that precise calibration of over the stunning that you're doing relative to a particular individual's brain. So your brain and my brain are shaped a little bit differently, and I think it's risky. Um, in small doses, it seems to be fine. I wouldn't personally want to be a subject really? in it. But, you're not a Dr. Jekyll uh, uh, that's, in this? That's no? not my thing. I'm a wimp. But but some you know people have experimented with it, and I could imagine some interesting creativity experiments that could be done or maybe have been Hmm. Another science fiction story just occurred to me as a result of that. Um, we, we talk all the time about how creative children are, small children, and, and, and the conventional wisdom is that from between 5 and 16, the, the creativity is, is, is sort of whipped out of them. Um, you study child development. Uh, is, is this true? Are our children naturally more creative? I think it goes back again a little bit to how you count creativity. So I think that five-year-olds are less inhibited, and that means that they will explore more possibilities, but they won't have the skill set necessarily to bring those things to fruition. Um, I went to a summer camp for for uh, basically a rock and roll summer camp called Day Jams. When you were a child? Uh, no, um, a couple recently. Of, recently, as when I was an adult learning to play guitar. And the, originally the idea was that I was just going to watch, but the director of the camp said, why don't you, you know, play in a band? You'll learn a lot more that way about you know, what the kids are really like. And so I joined a band uh, with 11-year-olds, and we kind of divided up the labor. They had faster fingers, and they kind of figured out the riffs. And I assembled the song. I sort of understood the holistic structure of a song better than they did. They didn't really understand that part. And so we did, in fact, collaborate, and I think the song came out okay. You can listen to it on my webpage under garymarcus.com slash rushhour. School of Rock 3. Gary Marcus, thank you so much. Thank you for having me. Gary Marcus is the author of Guitar Zero, as well as the book Kluge, The Haphazard Evolution of the Human Mind. He's a professor at New York University.
In a minute, we'll meet a little girl who lives in her own world, in the best way. Betcha Boo is kind of like a gun, but he's orange and he shoots yellow bullets. But he can shoot anything. He can shoot ice cream. And the bullets are candy bullets. What we can learn from our imaginary friends. That's ahead this hour in Studio 360 from Public Radio International in association with Slate. Studio 360. My mind is a raging torrent, flooded with rivulets of thought, cascading into a waterfall of creative alternatives. A few years ago, Jaron Lanier, the computer visionary and author, paid a visit to our offices. We were having one of our regular brainstorming sessions about all the things that science and art have in common. Jaron had to give a commencement address the next day, so he had been thinking a lot about how growing up with the Internet is really transforming young people's whole outlook on the world. He talked about how these days almost every kid he encounters seems to think that she or he is creative, but how total digital interconnectedness, he thinks, is actually making people less creative. The idea of creativity has become much less exceptional in their world than it was for previous generations. I remember when, uh, when I grew up, creativity was something that one uh, aspired to achieve it. And at that time, I was thought, well, how horribly elitist. Everybody should be creative. Everyone's in, a genius in some way. We're people. We're not, you know, we're not just factory workers or something. You know, and, 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 and that was the human impulse. And now that we've gotten to this world, and I, I started to feel the shift in undergraduates I, three or four years ago, I think, was kind of when it started to tip. And I felt that there was a sense of, oh, of course I'm creative. You know, I, I've never met an undergraduate who thinks, well, boy, I don't feel creative. It just it doesn't happen. When I was growing up, it certainly happened a lot. And um, of course, the bad thing about it is uh, the, the lack of expectation of reward, the lack of I think appreciation for really exceptional creativity sometimes. And so I'm a little concerned about things becoming too ambient and too flattened out, but that, that's just me. Um, but the other interesting thing is that I think the new challenge, which is something that is common to both good art and good science, is maintaining um, a worldview in which you're skeptical about how well you know reality and you assume that there's something beyond what you know that might be known. Because if you grow up within a network, there's this sort of sense that the network encompasses everything. So you see a lot of kids um, embracing a worldview in which every possible form of knowledge is already pre-categorized into some sort of omics. You know, everything is, uh, everything already has a structural implication and you're filling in pieces or you have, you have, you know, um, with the exception that if you can, if you're one of the lucky ones and you can operate the central node of the whole thing and you become Zuck, then you become this sort of master of the universe or the Wizard of Oz, you know, pulling all the strings. And, um, and so ambition becomes one of, of climbing the network instead of penetrating further into the mystery that surrounds us. The, the sensibility that art and science have always had in common for me was this feeling that uh, human understanding amounts to this island in a sea of mystery and that there's, there's uh, beyond what we know, genuine deep mystery. And that's something I find the new challenge is trying to educate undergraduates about that feeling because they haven't encountered it before. Computer scientist, author, and musician, Jaron Lanier. 
We have been exploring creativity this hour, and to close the show, we'll look at where it probably begins with children and their imaginations. When I was a little kid, three, four, five, I had a whole bunch of imaginary friends. The main one, I remember, was called Robbie Dobby. There was also Cracker Pin and Jimmy the Cat, later a poodle called Jean Vieve. I practically could have populated a book. And now, as an adult, I, I do populate books with make-believe characters who I know aren't real but do feel pretty real to me as I'm writing about them. Psychologists are looking at childhood imaginary friends to try and figure out what they're good for. Jessica Benko talked with one of those researchers, Marjorie Taylor at the University of Oregon. When I first started doing work on imaginary friends, I kept wanting to find the typical imaginary friend. And it was frustrating because every study, almost every friend was different from every other. It's, they could be a little tiny fly on your shoulder. They could be a giant penguin. They could be army of Martians, etc., etc. I saw a drawing of yours that had a bunch of your friends on it that you drew, and you put all their names. So who are all these guys? These are some of my imaginary friends. This is Maxine. I talked to her when she was seven, about to turn eight. Can you tell me a little bit about them? I like them. He's like an eyeball about this big. About an inch wide. He has no arms and legs, so he just rolls around, and he's really friendly. I like Grabobby. He does have arms and legs. Grabobby looks kind of like a wobbly starfish. He's just one of the smallest ones. He's like about that big. He likes to play ball games while he's a ball. And what's his name? Invisible Guy. You can only see his clothes, and he's invisible, so he doesn't have to wear a lot of clothes. All he wears is boots. He needs the boots to protect his imaginary feet, of course. And then you, can all, you can't see the outside, but you can see the inside. So his tongue is on, this counts as the inside, so you can see it. Can you see, like, what's inside his stomach and stuff? No, because his, his invisible skin is covering Who else is there? Can you tell me a little bit more about some of these guys? This is Fugat, and he's just like this ghost kind of guy, but he's always so happy. And he has a big smile on his face. Betchaboo is kind of like a gun, but he's orange, and he shoots yellow bullets. But he can shoot anything. He can shoot ice cream. And the bullets are candy bullets. It matters what you're scared of. Like, if you're scared of weapons, you might be scared of Betchaboo. They're not the kind of people that will go and, like, kill people. And they're not, like, gangsters, but they're, like, just tricksters. If they did that to me, then um, they would be deleted. Because then you don't exist. It's, like, the only way you can die. Sometimes when I forget about them, they die, but they're not deleted. It's like just falling to sleep for a really long time and you're like, you're not conscious. Marjorie Taylor's been studying kids like Maxine for more than 15 years, trying to figure out if they're different from other kids. Imaginary friends, when they appear in movies, they tend to be associated with the child who's shy and maybe doesn't have enough real friends or has gone through some kind of trauma, maybe is a little confused about fantasy and reality, all these things. Movies like Donnie Darko, The Orphanage, The Shining. 
remember what Mr. Halloran said. It's just like pictures in a book, Candy. It isn't real. But the kids she looked at seemed perfectly fine. It's not a problem of distinguishing fantasy and reality for these children. They know the difference. They tend to be more social, be less shy. They do better on on tasks which require you to take the perspective of another person in real life. So uh, we found that they are more creative on some kinds of tasks. Other people have found that their narratives are richer. Taylor and her grad students started with preschoolers, some who had imaginary friends and some who didn't. They would tell them the beginning of a story, and then the child would have to finish it. So we told a story about two children walking in the woods, and they see a key on the path, and they look at each other and say, I wonder if it's magic. And then we turn to the child and say, can you tell us what happens next? Some children will say, well, she took the key and showed it to her mom, uh, and that's the end. Other kids will say, well, the key fits into that door over there in the tree, and you open the door in the tree and you go in and then all kinds of things happened. There's a bunch of snakes. They found that kids with imaginary friends were showing more creativity on tests like this. Taylor got interested in children who invent whole worlds of imaginary friends, paracosms. Whole country or place where children think about all kinds of things like the entertainment, you think about the transportation system, you make coins. There are a lot of artifacts associated with having a paracosm. That's part of the fun. And they have different languages, and they each know every one of them. And my first one is unique, and it's just a bunch of, like, loops, and it's kind of, like, inclusive, but it doesn't really look like letters. or just, like, loops and swirls and stuff like that. And then tall is just lines. It can be squiggly lines and tall lines and short lines and fat lines, and they can just be all kinds of lines. And you can't really speak tall, but they use it for writing. They mostly speak unique in English. It's so tempting to speculate that kids with paracosms, with these very active imaginations, are the future creatives among us, the writers, the artists, the inventors, the geniuses. It feels right. Have you ever thought about what you might want to do when you grow up? Well, I want to be an artist or maybe a musician or something like that. But we don't really know. Taylor wants to continue her study to see how the kids do in school and what they achieve as adults. But the kids are 8, 9, 10 years old now, and she'll probably retire before they hit the peak of whatever they do. I'm pretty sure Maxine will be up to something interesting. Have you ever thought about why you have imaginary friends and not everybody else does? I think that some people think it's like for babies and some people like just don't have them. Some people don't have as good imagination. Sometimes I wish that other people could see my imaginary friends. Who's your favorite? Devil Man. He lives over there. And he lives like everywhere inside the lamp. He's right now, he's in there right now. If you want, I can maybe get him out of there because he might want to come out. Hello. <laughs> Actually, you can see that he's a nice person and just that he has all these creepy things in his house. Because he can be nice and like scary things.
Do you ever think that you won't have your imaginary friends anymore? I might delete a lot of them, but I'm always going to have Double Man. I just realized Double Man went back to the lamp. You can see Maxine's doodles of Devil Man and Betchaboo and all the rest of them on our site at pri.org slash studio360. Jessica Benko brought us that story with production by Ann Hepperman and original music by Jason Cady. And that does it for this hour of Studio 360. Thank you very much for listening. Since we first aired this episode in 2012, John Kaufman and Garnett Miller have died. If you're not subscribing to our podcast, you really should, because that's where you'll find special podcast segments. For instance, we just asked June Thomas, who co-hosts the Double X Gab Fest, to take a look at how sexual harassment has been dealt with on television shows over the years, such as Mad Men. I've always wondered what the writers of Mad Men were thinking. Are they trying to highlight how much things have changed since the 1960s? I need some madam from a Shanghai whorehouse to show me the ropes. Or are they making a commentary about how little things have changed? In that episode, June also looks at how other series, such as The Mary Tyler Moore Show and The Office, dealt with the subject of sexual harassment. To hear that segment, subscribe to Studio 360 on iTunes or Overcast or Stitcher or wherever you get your podcasts. Studio 360 is a production of PRI, Public Radio International, in association with Slate. Our executive producer is... Jocelyn Gonzalez. Our senior editor is... Andrew Adam Newman. Our technical director is... Louis Mitchell. Our producers are... Sam Kim. Skylar Swenson. Zoe Saunders. Tommy Bazarian. Our production assistant is... Claude Gillette. Special thanks this week to Jessica Benko. I'm Kurt Anderson. Studio 360's series on creativity and science is supported in part by the Alfred P. Sloan Foundation, enhancing public understanding of science and technology in the modern world. More information online at sloan.org. PRI Public Radio International. Next time on Studio 360. You go. Where shall I go? What shall I do? Frankly, my dear, I don't give a damn. Gone with the Wind is a great movie with one huge problem. The slavery nostalgia. To me, I think it's fair to call Gone with the Wind a Confederate monument. The Slate writer Aisha Harris, next time on Studio 360.